being with you this morning in week two of our series entitled Text, uh, where we're looking and taking a fresh look at God's Word, the Bible, and we looked at last week that it's a text message that God has given us, and we talked about last week that all of us, we check our text messages. Every time that sound goes off um, in our phones and the vibration and it beeps, that we check it. Uh, we always read our text messages, and in fact... We have never, ever, uh, ever heard this, that, you know what, I don't, please don't send me a text message because I'm not, I'm not a reader, um, and that just category doesn't exist, but we talked last week that a lot of us, that's the excuse we bring to not reading God's Word, the Bible. So, today, we're going to simply just uh, dive in, and we're going to look at the Bible, and we're going to look at, can we actually trust this book? Can we actually I see that this is reliable. And before we dive in, I just want to give you three quick facts about it. In fact, next week, I have a lot more facts we're going to be kind of looking in as we dig into God's Word. But here's, our, here's just three quick facts that you might not know about God's Word. That this book is the best-selling book in the history of the world. That anytime you look at the New York Times bestseller list, um, uh, E.L. James or uh, Daniel Steele or any of those may be at the top. But you will see uh, in the margin and in like a very like small two font that this precludes the Bible because this is, this is at the top of the bestseller list. It's just kind of assumed. So um, here's another fact. Uh, some of y'all were shocked that I knew who E.L. James was, by the way, so move on. Um, this book is also the most shoplifted book in the history of the world. I did not know that. I will say this, though. I'll never forget when I was in Dallas, Texas, going to seminary. I had an Isuzu Amigo uh, because Jesus loved me. And uh, somebody broke into, shattered my windshield so that they could get my Bible out of it. And I thought, dude, you really need that Bible, I think, more than I do. Um, because uh, you need to read Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt not steal. All right, all right, next one. Uh, fact number three, in America, 93% of people own a Bible. In fact, let me just see. How many of y'all, you have a Bible at home? Let's see your hands. All right? Sweet. All right? And get this. Average of three Bibles per household, and 27% of Americans own four more. So um, uh, it's one of those things that we have a lot of it. Uh, we have a lot of Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible here or a Bible that you can understand or read, we give them away for free here at OneChurch.tv. And you can go out uh, right outside these doors and you can pick one up. You cannot pay us for it. Uh, we don't want your money. We want you to have God's Word in your heart. So now let's do this. As we kind of dig into the reliability of the Bible, we have to ask and answer the question, can this book be trusted? And we're going to look at this next week. But the Bible isn't just one book, but it's actually a collection of 66 books. In fact, some of them aren't even books. They're letters and all of this stuff. It's really, really cool. Uh, written by over um, uh, 40 different authors over a 1,500 uh, time span. Um, so, uh, but we got to look at this. Can we trust God's Word, His text message, the Bible? Now, um, as we dig into this, there are really three tests that, uh, that you can use to figure out, can we actually trust the Bible? And the first test is this. We have the internal test, and the internal test asks and answers the question, do these writers claim that their writings are true, or is this something that they just made up? Then the next one is the external test. What do like other uh, sources outside of the Bible say about God's Word? Uh, do uh, people outside uh, of the Bible say that it's true? And what does archaeology have to do? We're going to dig into that. I'm really excited about that. And then the last one is the duplication of the biographical uh, test. The, excuse me, uh, the bibliographical test. And some of you are like, what does Bible have to do with the Bible? What it literally means, this is not so much a, a, a biblio, is a graph, is, the, is writings of. And biblio, of course, is just book. So what this really has to do with, and it's more easy easily described as the duplication test, is how, um, have the, uh, how many copies do we have of God's Word, and what is the time span between the originals that were written and the ones that we have in our hands that are extant today. So let's just kind of dive into this, and some of this is very technical. This is not going to be like a typical teaching uh, you hear at onechurch.tv, but I'm so glad 
you here because a lot of this, we're going to be looking over information and especially a lot of information about outside what the, outside the Bible, what it has to say about the Bible. So um, let's go ahead and go to this internal test. What do the writers claim, do the writers claim that their writings are true? That's the, the question that the internal test answers and, and, and ask and answers. So are, is it the person who wrote this? Is it just a story that they made up? Or is this something that says, I was there, I saw it, I was there, it was accurate. Here's what God's Word has to say about God's Word. All right, this is Second, uh, second Peter 1.16. We did not follow what? Here, let me, can y'all see that a little bit better now? We did not fo- uh, follow cleverly, what, invented stories when we were told about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, look at this, we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, what does it mean to be an eyewitness? It means that you witnessed it with your own eyes, or if you're Mike Wazowski, with your own eye, right? For some of you who laugh, you're like, yeah, you got kids. The rest of you who didn't, there you go, Monsters Incorporated. So, they're saying this. You know what? Nobody just told us this. We saw it. I mean, the person who wrote Second Peter, anybody know his name? Peter. Peter could tell you, you know what? When he was feeding the 5,000, I helped hand out the bread. I mean, not only that, but when he was walking on water, I saw it happen. And by the way, I walked on water too. And then I sank. Right? And, and I mean, Peter could say, I was there. I, I, I smelled it. I saw it. I touched it. Uh, that's really, really cool. It wasn't just cleverly invented stories. Keep on going. Second Peter 1, uh, verses 20 and 21. I love this. No prophecy in Scripture. So what he's saying is the Bible. Nothing in the Bible ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. What he's saying is, you know what, we just didn't invent this stuff. But look at what happens. No, these prophets were what? Moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So what the internal test is asking and answering is, do these people believe that their writings are true? And here in these passages in in Second Peter, they do. Let me uh, just kind of dig in a little bit more to this because uh, God believed that God used regular messed up people to record the Bible with no mess ups because the Holy Spirit was involved in this process. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. And when you look anywhere within the Bible, the Old Testament is God's inspired word. The New Testament is God's inspired word. When you go to the Gospels, and if you have like a red letter Bible, and what red letter Bible does, it says that Jesus is speaking, that Jesus's words are inspired by God, but they're no more inspired than what the book of Habakkuk is, because it's all God's word. In fact, it's all God breathed. Listen to what 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. It says this. All scripture is what? All scripture is God breathed. How many of y'all ever blown up a balloon before? All right. You take one of those balloons and it's and you're blowing it up. That's what God's word is. It's like literally that God took the scripture and he breathed his air into it. I love that. All scripture is God-breathed, and not just that, it is what? Useful. One of the things that a people a lot of times get so frustrated, me, uh, frust- so frustrated with me about is a lot of times when I'm teaching God's word, um, I, I, I want to I show to people that it's useful. Because here's the thing, if you don't know that it's useful, then you won't use it right? So like when we're uh, in, in a series and, you know, it may not even have a lot to do about Jesus maybe in that series, but there's other things. I believe that all of God's Bible is truth. And even if you don't, if you struggle with some of these others, if, if you do it, you'll realize it's true and it works. And my prayer is this, that somebody could show up on a Sunday morning and they could say, you know what, I don't believe the Bible is true. I don't believe in Jesus. But here's what the pastor had to say about marriage. And I started doing it, and it worked in my life. And I realized, you know what, it can be trusted. And if I can trust God w- with my marriage, then maybe I can trust him with my life. And maybe the Bible is true. 
So it, 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 it's, it, I believe that it's useful, and it's useful for what? For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, so that the person may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you read God's word, you will be equipped to do everything that God is calling you to do. Let's go to the next one, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. And what does God's word do? It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And I really believe that's one of the biggest reasons why people don't don't want to read God's word. Because it exposes it exposes all of us. It exposes you, it exposes me, it exposes our motives, right? And the Bible says that about this book that it's truth, it's alive, it is powerful. And last one we're going to look at before we move on to the next test. Here, here's, and this is what's so cool. Um, Jesus died around 30 AD and um, uh, outside of Jerusalem on this hill. And after he died three, three days later, the biblical writers claimed that he came back alive, that he was actually raised from the dead. Now listen to what Paul writes about this, about Jesus. 1 Corinthians fifteen three. I passed on to you what was the most important and what had also been passed on to me. Jesus Christ died for our sins. What does that next, next word say? Just as the scriptures had said, exactly right. So what Paul is saying is this. You know what? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four accounts of Jesus, they are the scriptures. He was buried, next verse, and look at this. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. There it is again. So, uh, and then look at this next verse. I love this. He was seen by Peter. And then by the 12, and after that, he was seen by more than what? 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And what, when, when Paul was writing this, he was saying, listen, don't just take my word for it. There are over 500 people saw him alive again. Talk to them. They're still around. I mean, and what's so cool is that the New Testament was written between 47 A.D. and about 95 A.D., and there were plenty of first-generation believers on hand who saw all and, and, and kind of experienced what the Bible was all about, and they could have any time refuted, you know what, no, 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 that's not what happened. But here Paul is saying, there are over 500 people. Go and seek them out for yourself. So the Bible, when we look at the internal test, does the Bible claim that its writings are true? It passes with flying colors. Let's look at the next one. And this is the external test. The external test. The external test asks and answers the question, what does outside evidence say about the Bible? Because some of you, I get it. You're saying, okay, of course the Bible is going to say that it's true. But what do people who aren't Christians What do they say about it? Do they claim that it's true? Now, when you look at the external test, one of the things you want to do is you want to look at two things, the non-biblical writings and archaeology. So let's look at the non-biblical writings. The non-biblical writings. Um, First of all, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, the historicity of Jesus Christ is like non-debatable. It's firmly established. Um, And what I mean by that is that there was a person named Jesus who lived. No one argues that fact. And let me tell you a couple of reasons why. Because we have, not only the Bible has to talk about it, but let's take the Bible out of it. You have a first century Roman historian by the name of Tacitus. Not a Christian, not a Christ follower. He talks about Jesus, whom they called the Christ, whom he lived and moved and breathed and resurrected. Let me tell you another one. Uh, The Jewish first century Jewish historian, again, not a Christian, named Josephus. Josephus chose to write the history of the Jews. The Romans asked him to write the history of the Jews before Rome wiped the Jews out completely and before they destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And Josephus writes not only about Jesus Christ, but writes about his brother James, writes about John the Baptist. Here you have people who aren't Christians talking about the events that we find in the Bible. 
So uh, non-biblical outside sources, they talk about all the things that the the Bible. Now let's look at this next one, archaeology. We're going to be on this one for a while because this one excites me. It really, really does. It really does. And in fact, it's my hope and prayer that if you're here and you're like, I don't know if the Bible is true or any of this stuff, I hope that as we dig into this, you can realize that to be a Christian, you don't have to take out your brain and set it over there and just pretend like none of this, you know, just take it on faith. There is a portion of this that you do have to take on faith. But you and I must look at the evidence. And let me tell you, when it comes to archaeology, This is some cool stuff. Now, let me tell you, before I dig into this, I want to let you know that in the middle of the 20th century, around the 1950s, you had a lot of biblical critics uh, really attacking the Bible because there was very few archaeological finds that mentioned some key people in God's Word, God's text message. Um, In fact, around the 1950s, we had found no archaeological evidence that David ever existed. And you know who I'm talking about with David, right? King David, Goliath. uh, He was uh, the second king of Israel. We had a lot of biblical stuff about it, but we we had zero evidence archaeologically that David ever existed back in the 50s. Another one, Pilate. Pontius Pilate, he is the guy who, um, he was the Roman, uh, uh, the Roman guy who said, you know what, we're going to kill Jesus. And uh, he decided to put Jesus to death. In the 1950s, we had zero archaeological evidence that Pilate ever existed. <laughs> but let me tell you, the end of the 20th and the, 20, and the beginning of the 21st centuries has been a slew. We've been able to find a lot of evidence. And let me just show you of a few. All right, first one. This, this one right here is something that's called uh, the Tel Dan Stele. And the reason why it's called Tel Dan, Tel is, a, is like a, a place where a city used to be. And when it's destroyed, it's rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. And eventually, you get this little mound. And that mound is called a Tel. And the reason why it was destroyed and rebuilt pretty much at the exact same spot. As some of you soldiers who've been in the Middle East, you know that where water is at, people congregate. And water is a very, I mean, it is, it is huge uh, in the Middle East. So in, in the northern part of Israel, there was a city called Dan. And Dan was, was built and destroyed, built and destroyed. So it's Tel Dan, it's this mound. And there we found something called the Tel Dan Stele. And right down here, it's the first archaeological evidence that mentions David, King David in the Bible. And we found this back in 1993, fairly recent, fairly recent. So we found archaeological evidence that supports that there was a person by the name of David who was the king of Israel. That's really cool. Now get this. You remember how I mentioned that, uh, that many scholars uh, outside the Bible, that there were no evidence ever unearthed about Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who, who, uh, who allowed Jesus to die. Well, no archaeological evidence. Well, look at this. In 1961, in the town of Caesarea, right by the seashore of of the Mediterranean, we find the first archaeological evidence mention of Pontius Pilate. So now, critics of the Bible are like, okay, well, there's archaeological evidence of that. Well, and and they'll keep on going. And I'm going to get this at the end. This is kind of, I'm getting to the end first. If you don't want a God to tell you what to do, that's a heart issue. You will find any reason, head issue, to not believe. You need to hear that because so many of us, you say, you know what, I don't believe God's word because I don't believe the evidence. I promise you by the end of the day, you will realize you really don't have a head issue. You have a heart issue. But that's at the end. Let's keep on going. All right. Let me show you this. This is, they've actually discovered Peter. You know, the guy who walked on water, Jesus saw Peter's house at Capernaum. Uh, I've been there today. There's actually a church that's built over the ruins. But uh, here they've unearthed Peter's house at Capernaum. It was Peter's, I believe it was his mother-in-law's house where the four people, um, uh, they kind of removed the roof and they dropped uh, the person, the paralytic in who couldn't walk. 
Again, you ought to read God's Word. It's some cool stuff. They found this at Capernaum. I've seen it with my own eyes. Again, it's so cool. Let me show you another one. And this is very, very recent. In the 1980s, they found a huge discovery of a first century AD fishing boat found in the mud flats of the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee when the lake was really low. All right, And so in the mud, the lake is getting low, low, and they see something in the mud that's kind of jutting out. And what they found was a wooden first century fishing boat from the time of Jesus. Now, again, we don't know if this is a, a boat that Jesus ever was in. But by looking at it, you can tell exactly how it was. And so much of Jesus' miracles was done either in the boat or uh, him sleeping in the bottom of the boat or getting out of the boat. I mean, what rocks my world is that here we have found a wooden boat still intact. That should blow your skirt up, right? That's just really, really, really cool. All right, let me show you another one. Um, this is, and I'm going to talk a lot about this next week, but um, in, at the end of today's message. But um, the, the, the writers of God's Word would write, um, the, uh, would write God's Word on manuscripts or scrolls, or sometimes they would write them on animal skins. And um, the, the issue, the problem with that is many times those manuscripts and scrolls and animal skins, they would start to decay or rot or all this stuff. Well, let me tell you about one. And by the way, we have no, um, we have no uh, copies that we believe of the original manuscripts of any of the writers. And some of you are like, well, that, shouldn't that bother us? I'm going to talk about that in a minute, the reason why it shouldn't. But let me tell you what's so freaking cool about this. How many of y'all have heard of Jeremiah in the Bible? All right, Jeremiah in the Bible. We don't have any of the original writings of Jeremiah, but let me tell you, Jeremiah didn't write any of the stuff anyway because it was Jeremiah's friend, his scribe Baruch, who kind of dictated it. In fact, here's what God's Word has to say about that. Let's go to this next one. I'll go back and show you what we... So Sir Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, what did Baruch do? Baruch wrote them all on a scroll. Now, go back to this last one, that last picture. What's so cool is back in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes and burns Jerusalem. And, of course, a lot of these artifacts, a lot of the scrolls burned with them. But let me tell you, anytime you had a scroll, you would take a clay seal and you would put it and you would stamp the outside of the scroll. And that's what would keep the scroll together like this, right? And, of course, the manuscripts were burned up. The paper burns up when you put it through fire. But when you have clay and it goes through fire, what happens? It hardens. And what you have here, we found this. This is so freaking cool. This, this inscription reads, in fact, let me read it because my Hebrew is a, a little rusty. It says this, um, that uh, this is a clay seal from one of the scrolls that Baruch wrote from Jeremiah. All right, it's found in 1975. And it says, this is this scroll sealed by Baruch of Jeremiah. And it talks about his heritage of Neriah. Uh, we've got this. We don't have the original, but we've got what he stamped. And by the way, what's so interesting about this? On the top left, there's a fingerprint. Isn't that cool? That is cool. I mean, and, and this is, dates to 586 B.C. This is almost 600 years before Jesus came, 2,600 years ago. And we found proof that Jeremiah and his friend Baruch, son of Neriah, actually existed. Let me give you a couple of other ones. And, and just to be totally heads up, so these next two, they're still trying to figure out if they're true or not. This next one, we pretty much are confident that it's true. The next one, we're, we're jury's still out. But let me show you this. Um, this is an ossuary. Now, let me tell you what an ossuary is. It's a bone box. And what happens is in, in that time, go to that next one, they, when people died, they would uh, put their remains in a what? A tomb. In fact, this is a rolling stone tomb, very similar to uh, Jesus, right? They would put their, their body in a tomb, go to the next one, and here's the inside of that tomb. They're kind of like little cubby holes. They're bunk beds. And they would place the body into one of these holes. And, and, of course, they would be there, and the body would rot, and it would decay. And after a year, they would open up the tomb. They would, uh, only the bones would remain. And they would go back to, if you would, and they would put their bones 
in a bone box called an ossuary. Now, let me tell you about this. There's an inscription that you can barely see right there um, because this is not the best picture. But let me tell you what this is. On the side of this box, there's an inscription, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. And it was found in 1990, and there were bones of a 60-year-old male inside of it. Now, who's Caiaphas? I'm glad you asked that question. Caiaphas was the Jewish high priest who had Jesus arrested and sent him to Pilate to be crucified. Let me read you some scripture. You like forward a couple? There you go. Jesus was bound and sent to who? Caiaphas, the high priest. All right. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. We have discovered the bones and the bone box of Caiaphas, the high priest, who had Jesus killed. By the way, we've never found Jesus' bones. Some of you are like, why not? (laughs) Because the Bible says he was resurrected on the third day, that he is alive and he is living. Let me give you another one. And this this next one, uh, again, the jury's still out. We we, we, kind of know of this last one. A lot of people, a lot of scholars believe that is to be true. This next one is the ossuary, the bone box of James. Let me read this. James, the son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. That's inscribed on the, uh, right here, as you can tell it, right here. Can y'all read that? Okay. I know. So, hey, it's Hebrew to me. Anyway, um, now again, we we don't, we don't, uh, this was found, discovered in October of 2002, just 13 years ago. And again, we're trying to, people are trying to figure out through carbon dating and all this stuff, is this true? They're trying to uh, base the inscription and look at other writings of that time. Is it true? But so far, that's what people believe. Here's the point. Every archaeological discovery has proven the Bible to be true. That's cool. You see, you don't have to believe and just say, well, I don't have, I don't have to have any evidence. No, 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 no. Uh, not one archaeological discovery, uh, discovery has ever contradicted biblical reference. Over and over again, we're finding archaeological discoveries that affirm the truth of his text message. Now, let's put this into context to other religions. Every archaeological discovery has proven the Bible is true alongside other archaeological finds against other texts that people say are spiritual. Let's go to the Quran. We have found more archaeological evidence finds that go against the Quran that support the Quran and Islam. You will find a hard time finding archaeology that supports any of the teachings of Islam. Let me give you another one. What about Mormons? The Mormons believe that Jesus, after he was resurrected, that Jesus came to American Indians here in America and that the Indians built massive cities here in North America. We have found, listen to this, zero archaeological evidence to support not one claim of, the, of Mormonism in the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith said that he received two tablets, two golden tablets. We found no archaeological evidence that they have ever existed. But every archaeological find we found has proven the Bible to be reliable. That is amazing. Now, let's look at the duplication test. The duplication test asks and answers the question, how accurate are the copies that we have today? Now, again, let me, let me talk through this a little bit. Because um, let me show you what a manuscript, this is a, a, a kind of a picture of a manuscript. And it's a scroll made from papyrus. Some was made from animal, animal skins. And what would happen is Paul, when he would sit down and he would write, or uh, many times he would dictate and Luke would write because Paul's eyesight was failing. He would, uh, Luke and, and Paul would write these manuscripts, if you will, and send these letters to Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae and all of these different areas. Um, we have none of the original writings. 
uh, they have just all been gone. And the reason why is because, again, when you have paper and you have written on it and, and, and people unfold it and they keep on reading it and reading it and reading it over the years, what happens is it gets old. So what they would do is they would have these professional copiers called scribes and they would copy and they would look at the original and they would make a copy of it because there was no Xerox, right? There was no, hey, let's go to Kinko's and let's photocopy this puppy, right? There wasn't. So some of you are like, well, how do we know that the copies are reliable, okay? Well, for actually, we actually have three issues, uh, three reasons why, and I only have a chance to go into two of them. One, you're going to have to go and, and go on our website and get some of our resources. But what they would do is scribes would, they would count up every line, and, and, they would, and they would figure out what the middle letter is of the original, and then they would count up every line, and they would figure it out, is it the same? And if it's not, it was destroyed. Every time they came to God's name, they would use a different pen. Um, there was over 4,000 different rules that a scribe had to abide to before he even started taking the copy and moving over here. Now, why don't we have the original manuscripts? Well, again, because they would get old. And again, some of you who know this, when our American flag gets old or, or, or it touches the ground, how should we honor that? What are we supposed to do? We are to burn it. We don't burn it because we're against, uh, we're dishonoring the American flag. We burn it because we want to honor it. Well, let me tell you, the Jews, that's exactly uh, how they were with their Hebrew manuscripts and their Greek manuscripts. Is any times it would get old, they would make a meticulous copy of it. And then they would burn it or they would bury it and they didn't want it to be desecrated. But now they had the, a, a new copy of it that had no broken edges or anything like that. Now, the question you have to ask yourself, again, is how reliable are the copies? And this next part is just really, really good. Really, really good. All right? The duplication test centers around two criteria. Uh, how many copies survived and how, what time interval that elapsed between the original and the copies. Now, let's start with the second one. What type of time interval uh, interlapsed, elapsed between the original and the copy? So, if Paul wrote something in 50 AD, we don't have the original, but what is our earliest copy of that? Now, let me kind of show you this. This is some cool stuff. All right? And before you go through this, let me kind of give you this. In the Old Testament... Right? The earliest copies, and you can kind of go through this. Here's a timeline we have. With the earliest copies we have of the Old Testament, um, this is us in 2015, right? And here is, you stop right here, 1400 BC, 1446 is when Moses lived. So we're talking a 2,300, a 3,400-year time gap between us and Moses when it actually happened. Old Testament, remember, okay? Now, let's keep on going. Um, Jesus died in 33 AD, and the oldest copies we have of the Old Testament dates around 1000 AD, and it's called the Masoretic Text. Now, for some of you, that should bother you, because you're thinking, okay, that's only 1,015 years ago, uh, of something that's hap that happened 2,400 years before, right? That the oldest copies we have of the Masoretic Text... And, 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 of course, we would translate the Old Testament in Genesis, Exodus, okay? These were the oldest copies we had. Now, this is what's so cool. This is the oldest copies we had until 1947. What happened in 1947? Well, a goat got lost in Israel. I can't even make this stuff up. A goat got lost in Israel, and a shepherd boy went to try to find the goat, and the goat got lost around the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth, 1,300 feet below sea level, and uh, he throws this, this stone into this cave, all right? And trying to, you know, and he's just, you know, he's doing what a boy does, and he hears this crash. So he goes in. And he finds the greatest archaeological discovery of the past 2,000 years. He finds thousands of scrolls that were rolled up and placed in clay pots and jars. And he found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, here's what's so interesting about this. Um, um, uh, in fact, here's a copy of uh, Isaiah. The Isaiah scroll, I mean, it goes out for tens, 20, 30, 40, 50 feet when you stretch it out. I've seen it. 
uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, they're close to Tel Aviv. And what happens is this, little, this young Bedouin, this shepherd boy, finds... The, uh, and, and it finds all of these scrolls that dates back. Go back to this one. These, these dates, but no, go back forward. Yeah, yeah, keep on going. Yeah, right here. These scrolls of the Old Testament dates back from 200 B.C. to 68 A.D. Now, how much of a gap is between this and that? Well, about 1,000 to 1,200 years, Right? So now, in 1947, we, we could say our oldest text isn't the Masoretic text. It's the Old Testament that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. All, uh, thir- all 39 books were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls except one. And that was the book of Esther. Because as we talked about last year, Esther doesn't mention the name of God. But all of these other ones do. And guess what? When you compare the Masoretic text to, a, uh, to the text that was written 1,200 years before it, get this. of it is word for word. And what's not 95%, the 5% is variations on spelling. Okay? How many of uh, y'all, you know somebody uh, named Chris? C-H-R-I-S. Anybody know any name that Chris that's K-R-I-S? You know some people like that. They have misspelled their name. All right? My point is this. When you compare the Masoretic text, 1000 A.D., to the Dead Sea Scrolls, 200 B.C., they're identical, except for some spellings. That is amazing. And some of you, if you had to go into the Old Testament and do some of those spellings, you would mess up the spellings too, right? Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus. You're like, you had what? Right? So anyway, all right, Joash, King Joash, you did what with... Moving on, moving on, all right? Now, now let's look at this. Let's look at the, the New Testament. By the way, the New Testament, we have, we don't have the originals, but we have copies that date to about 50 to 60 years after it happened. So Paul, we don't have his original letter that he wrote in, in 50 AD, but we have a letter that's written in 90 AD or 100 AD. Now, look at this next one. Let's look at the next one. We're going to be close to being done. The number of copies. Number of copies. How many copies do we have? Let's put this in comparison to some other uh, uh, non-biblical history stuff that we believe. Now, look at this. Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad is is pretty much the most accepted non-biblical historical writing. And we have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad that dates, here's the time gap, from when it happened to when the, the, the copy that we have is 500 years after the fact, right? So again, hang out with me just for a sec. If you're writing, Scotty, if we're writing a biography of your life, all right, and somebody wrote that down, all right, and then it was published... Um, and again, we know this is fiction because, uh, uh, you know, I would read a story about your life. But, I, you know, Nikki, I'm not sure. Anyway, my point is, i got to stay on target. Um, my point is, now, you know, you fast forward 500 years and the earliest copy we would have of a biography written about uh, Scotty um, would be 500 years after Scotty ever lived. And that would be 2,515. I just did that in my head. All right. Now, let's keep on going. Plato's Republic. Plato. How many of you all have heard of a guy named, by the name of Plato? Anyone? All right. We have seven copies that prove that Plato ever existed. That, and, and the time gap between when Plato lived and our earliest manuscripts is 1,300 years, 980, 1,300 years after he lived. Right? Let's keep on going. Aristotle. Anybody heard of Aristotle? All right, cool. Aristotle. We have five copies. One, two, three, four, five. Five copies that Aristotle ever lived, and the time gap is 1,400 years between when he lived and our earliest copy. Now, look at this. Uh, 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 Julius Caesar. We've all heard of Caesar. Et tu brute, right? We have 10 copies. 10 copies that say that Julius Caesar ever lived, and they date to about 1,000 years after it happened, 900 A.D., he was around 40, 50 B.C. Now, uh, uh, Thucydides, we have eight copies. Th- by the way, Thucydides. How many of y'all have heard of Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great. This is the only 
this is the only extant uh, writing that we have to prove that Alexander the Great ever existed, ever existed. Yet when you go into your history books, you read about who? Alexander the Great. He died in 323 BC. He did. Now, we have eight copies. Let's look at the New Testament. We're just doing the New Testament here. We have 5,492 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,300 other versions for a grand total of 24,792 copies of the New Testament that date just 90 years after it happened, about 125 to 135 A.D. Now again, seven copies, five copies, ten copies, eight copies. And everybody's like, yeah, Julius Caesar, he was a person. Yeah, he was real. Oh, Alexander the Great, yeah, he was totally. We got a bad movie uh, about Alexander the Great. By, um, you know, anybody suffered through that one? Anyone? Uh, but 24,792 copies of the New Testament alone? And people want to say, well, there ain't no evidence of it. Really? You just might be an ostrich putting your head in the sand. L- let, me, let me show you one other thing. And this is outside of the, the and, and it's, it's this right here that really made me become a Christian. Because the Bible, unlike any other book, it has a lot of predictions. They're called prophecies. In this last test, the, pro, the, the prophecy test, is has the Bible, has, the, has what the Bible predicted come true? <laughs> this is going to be a good one. Let me tell you this. When I was 12 years old, I would listen to a person talk about how Israel, back in 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it, they ceased becoming a country. And from 586 B.C., they stopped being a country. But the Bible talked about and prophesied that they would become a country again. And immediately after World War II, much to the response of Hitler and the Holocaust and all of that, the entire world community said, you know what, we're going to create the state of Israel. And Israel became a country again. Do you know how many other countries have been wiped off the face of the earth and ceased to exist and then become a country again? You want to know how many times that's happened before? One, and it's called Israel. They're the only one. When I heard that fact, I was like, okay. Okay, I still have some questions, but I believe. Because the Bible predicted. Let me just give you this last part. Let's look at just the prophecies in the Old Testament that happened with Jesus. This is so interesting. Um, uh, There were over 300 prophecies fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Over 300. How many? Over 300. Mathematician and scientist Peter Stoner applies the rules of probability to these predictions. Professor Stoner wanted to know the likelihood of just eight of just eight of those 300 prophecies coming true and happening in Jesus Christ. So what are the odds that eight prophecies written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, what were the odds that these prophecies were fulfilled with one person? For example, it was predicted that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, it was predicted that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend. It was predicted that he would be beaten and spat upon. It, would be, it was predicted that while he was on the cross, people would gamble for Jesus' clothing. Uh, people would uh, uh, give him sour wine to drink. It was predicted uh, on the cross that no bone would be broken. All of these things. Got it? Eight prophecies. How many prophecies? Eight. What is the probability that eight would be fulfilled within one person? What are the odds? Now, here's it. The chances of those eight, not the 300, we have 300, but just the eight being fulfilled are one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, let me g- give you some perspective. That's one followed by keep, you know, that many zeros. Anybody want to know, tell me what that number is? That's hundreds, thousands, is that right? Millions, billions. I'm done. I don't even know what that is. What I do is I want that to be my bank account, right? But let me tell you, those are the odds. Now, let me put that in perspective. The odds of you being struck by lightning, 1 in 709,260. The odds of you winning the lottery. Anybody playing the lottery? Make sure to tithe on it. Just saying if you win. 
The odds of you winning the lottery are 1 in 5 million 425,786. So your odds, they're a long shot. The odds of you being uh, attacked by a shark are 1 in 11.5 million. But the odds of 8 of these prophecies coming true in Jesus are 1 to the, uh, 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Now, let me give you that example. He writes this. He says, imagine taking one silver dollar and putting an X on it and dropping that silver dollar somewhere, anywhere in the state of Texas. How many of y'all been to the state of Texas? All right. It's called the Lone Star State. It's called, everything's bigger in Texas, right? It just is. So you take one silver dollar, you put an X on it, and you put it somewhere in the state of Texas. And then from there, then imagine dumping two feet of silver dollars over the entire state of Texas. That's a lot of silver dollars. All over the entire state of Texas, there is one coin that you need to find buried within two feet of silver dollars covering the entire state. And then you blindfold someone and you give them days, weeks, months, years to wander around the state of Texas. And when, they re- and when they're ready... They plunge their hand through two feet of silver dollars covering the entire state, and they pull out the one silver dollar that has an X on it. That is the odds of eight prophecies coming true in one person. And we don't have eight people. We have 300. So here's my, here's my challenge for you as we close. And I just want to state this. The Bible can be trusted. That's our big idea today. The Bible can be trusted. And as you leave today, you're going to be getting a bookmark with a lot of the scriptures that we've talked about today. But my challenge for you is this. Do you have a heart issue or do you have a head issue? Because, see, most people, they say that they have a head issue. Well, you know, I, I don't believe there's any evidence and there's, there's stuff contradicting in the Bible. And, again, you heard somebody who was smarter than you, who had more degrees than you. You went to college, you went to high school, whatever, and they kind of shot holes in your faith. And you're like, well, it, you know, they're smarter than I am. And even though I've never read it for myself, if they don't believe, then I don't believe. I think you need to look for yourself. Let me tell you about two guys who did. There was a guy, he was 19 years old. His name was Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell was an atheist who was fast-tracked. He was wanting to become a lawyer. And he said, you know what? I want to, one of my goals, I just, I want to prove that the Bible and Christianity is false. So he went to Glasgow, Scotland, and, uh, and he started looking at a lot of the different manuscripts, and he went all over the world And the cool thing about it is 50 years after that time, Josh McDowell writes books telling other people about Jesus Christ. Because he tried to disprove it. And in fact, a lot of the stuff that I've talked to you about today comes from his brand new book called God Breathe. Uh, The Undeniable Power and Reliability of Scripture just came out. And I'm telling you, he wanted to disprove God's word And now he is a believer in following Jesus Christ 50 years later. Let me give you another guy. Uh, This guy, um, he was a, uh, um, what do you call it? Somebody who, uh, he was a journalist. He worked uh, uh, for uh, a paper in Chicago, trying to figure out, uh, the Chicago Tribune for 14 years. His name was Lee Strobel. And he eventually became the legal editor. His wife becomes a Christian, starts going to this church. She becomes a Christian, and he wants nothing to do with Christianity or the Bible. And some of you ladies, you're here today, and you come alone because your husband is at home. I'm just telling you, keep on praying. Don't nag him, but keep on praying, right? And let him see your, uh, uh, your life and what God's done in your life. But what happens is Lee Strobel says, you know what? I want to investigate this stuff for myself. He was looking at his wife and how much she changed. So for the next two years, he investigated Christianity. He was an atheist, did not believe in Jesus Christ. (laughs) After two years, he becomes to know Jesus Christ. He became a pastor of a church called Willow Creek Community Church. And now he has written tons of books, The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith, a journalist's perspective and in personal investigation of the evidence of Jesus. A journalist investigates the tough objections to Christianity. He's a New York Times bestseller. 
My point is this. I double dog, triple dare you. If you don't believe God's word, I, I challenge you to prove it to be false. I challenge you. And we'll give you a, a couple months, couple years, but in a couple years, we'll baptize you here. And you can come and you can tell everybody else about Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, it's not a head issue. It's probably a heart issue. You see, the people that I've met who say they have issues, you know, there's no evidence, there's no proof. What I found is when you really talk to and hear about their story, they're angry. They're hurt. They're angry that somebody that they loved passed away. They're hurt that something happened and they cried out to God, but God didn't intervene for some reason. But here's what I know. I believe that the Bible teaches that everybody lives forever somewhere. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. And I can tell you, some of you know this, some of you don't. My wife's father passed away this past Tuesday. And uh, we did his funeral yesterday. And Richard served his military. He was, uh, he was special forces with 5th group. He served in the military for 26 years. He was a sergeant major. And as we were at his funeral yesterday in Dover, I was reminded that he is with Jesus. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he is in a better place. And my prayer and my goal, what I hope happens to each and every one of us in this room, that you would come to know Jesus Christ. Because without Jesus, we will spend eternity apart from him. But with Jesus, we will be with him. We will always be with him. Romans 8 says, what can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Life can't. Death can't. Powers, authorities can't. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's found in Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? I hope and I pray that you do. Let me pray with you guys. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. I thank you so much, God, that we can just be able to look at your word and we can see that we don't have to co commit intellectual suicide to just follow you blindly. God, there's nothing blind about this. Lord, you've given us so much evidence that if we will just open up our eyes, it is evident. It's evident that you came, that you died. You died on a cross so that we could come to know you. Heavenly Father, I pray that not a person will leave here without knowing and answering that question. What is Jesus to me? What is Jesus to me? We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.